Stephen A. Smith. We had a thoughtful, insightful, powerful conversation. And I wasn't going to come at him with any debates, and I wasn't looking for hot takes on hot topics. Stephen A. gets very well paid to do that superbly on all sorts of platforms. First take on ESPN, of course, and Stephen A.'s world in ESPN Plus, SportsCenter, NBA, and boxing coverage, and more than 9.2 million followers between his Twitter and Instagram. I wanted to talk to him about what sets him apart, what's gotten him to the top, the influence of five strong women in his life. He was very open about his challenges and setbacks, about loss and his mortality. We covered all sorts of stuff, including his excellent acting on General Hospital and his big plans for the future. Well, Stephen A., you are an extremely busy man. I am grateful for you making some time. I hope you're going to enjoy this. This is interesting for me because we've never really had a real conversation. I think we've been in the yeah. same building a few times at fights or yeah. NBA games. We've, we've, yeah. I, I've, at least I've admired you from afar for a long time, but this will be my, our first ever conversation. We've had no pre-interview, so there's no safety net. Here we go. No, man, please. <laughs> the pleasure's all mine, man. You've done great, great work for us throughout the years, and ESPN wouldn't be what it is, and I wouldn't be where I am if it were not for people like you. So when you made the request for me to come on, I was happy to do so. I might edit out the compliments. I usually do that, but... besides your obvious genius as a communicator and your thoughtfulness as a commentator a couple things I admire about you is is your resilience you've been knocked down a few times really from the start of your life but certainly throughout your career and you are a risk taker professionally which I Mm -hmm. really appreciate Let's, let's start with the resilience man how many times in your life or your career do you think you've been knocked down and in the in the views of other people finished Wow. For um, man, I got left back in fourth grade from having a first grade reading level. That was being knocked down, uh, humiliated by the whole neighborhood who was aware that I got left back and I had a reading deficiency. I had dyslexia, um, even though that's what that's we didn't know that at the time that it actually happened in the 70s. So that's a knockdown. Um, not making the basketball team. Uh, my junior year in high school, I mean, wait, having to wait until my senior year, and then I made it, but being knocked down my junior year. Um, you know, being in college, cracking my kneecap in half, playing for Clarence Big House games, uh, and ultimately having to forfeit my scholarship to come back home to rehab because it was a Division II program, and my mother's insurance would not cover me unless I came home to New York and not stay in North Carolina. That was a huge knockdown, um, you know, and being let go by ESPN in uh, 2009 over a contract dispute. That was a huge letdown. So, you know, I would tell you, by and large, about five or six times I've been knocked down where, you know, people thought I was finished, quite frankly, getting canceled in 2007, even though I had done 327 shows and conducted over 780 interviews in that span. Um, it was still considered a failure. That was definitely being knocked down with people wondering where my career is going. Uh, so I would tell you about five or six strong times where people thought I was finished. That's about right. Yeah, the Stephen A. Smith story is definitely one of comebacks. You mentioned the ESPN situation. I mean, clearly at that time, 
they didn't see the value in you that you eventually have showed the company and then some. <laughs> it's a contract dispute that I've heard you describe, but you know, you came back. First of all, I want to ask, where were you emotionally and mentally at that point when you're sort of on the streets after having you know, a budding career and having a visible position? I was devastated, first of all. I felt like um, I did not deserve to lose my job. To lose the show, sure. But I was on NBA shoot-around at the time before it was called NBA Countdown. Um, I was hosting, quite frankly. Um, I, I, was, I was, you know, an NBA analyst and inside of a sports center. Um, I was doing a radio show as well. And for me to wake up one day and after having four jobs and having absolutely nothing, um, I really felt like I got screwed over and I felt like it was grossly unfair and I played the role of victim, but that only lasted for about eight hours. And then my mother, God rest her soul, looked at me and I'll never forget. And I'm writing a memoir. I've got my book with Simon and Schuster coming out next January. And I tell a story about how my mother brought me up a tray of food because I went over to her house, just languished in her house, didn't go to my house went back in the bunk bed that I grew up in, mm. all of this stuff, and just laid there for a couple of days. And then she came to me one day and handed me a plate of food. And on the plate, on the tray with the food, was a mirror, one of them handheld mirrors. And I said, what is this for? She said, that's for you to take a look at yourself when you feel, when you start ready, when you're ready to stop feeling sorry for yourself. She said, I'm quite sure it wasn't all their fault. When do you look at you? She said, you're my son. How did I raise you? You know, this, you weren't innocent in all of this. And when she made me do that, I was forced to reflect what my attitude was like, the kind of approach that I took towards work, uh, particularly my superiors, my supervisors. What kind of attitude did I have? How did I speak to them? How enthusiastic was I about work? Um, was I too argumentative? Did I challenge every little thing? Did I not pick my battles? You start thinking about all of those things. And, and when you reflected on those things, when I reflected on those things, I realized I was more to blame than they were. And because I had more culpability on my shoulders and in my heart than they did, I eradicated any blame in their direction. Regardless of what they may have done, I put it all on me because since I was able to point to a multitude of things that I was doing, that I would not advise any employee to do. I just said, I'm never going to get beyond this unless I own all of it. And that's what I did. Moms are filled with wisdom. And I want to circle back to her a little bit later, but that's a yeah. rare place to arrive at, Stephen. I got to tell you, 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 people take things very personally. It's hard not to. You get wounded. Very few people can arrive at a place to say, I had more to do with that setback than anybody else. But you did arrive back in the business with a place of wisdom. I think realizing from what you've said about this, that it's not personal. It is business. It's far less about loyalty than it is mm -hmm. about utility. What can yes. you do for me now and going forward? Not, not what you did in the past. What right. can you do now? And to a company, you are an asset or you're mm -hmm. not. Clearly right. you are, but you, you, you come back like hardened by that experience, but I think a lot wiser about what can be a pretty murky business at times. Yeah. yeah, no question about it. And I think that, you know, you're able to reflect on a certain things. Like, for example, you know, I, I would see guys like I'd see you calling college football games. So I see guys calling Monday Night Football. I see guys doing a lot of different things. And I'm like, no, I can't do that. I know better. I know my position. But 
I can be in this position where I can help generate money for the company. If you just gave me the opportunity, why can't I have that opportunity? Well, bosses make decisions all the time and everybody's coming to them thinking that they could do something. And you have to make a decision as to what you think is best. So they have a right to make those decisions because they're in those positions. And then the other thing was, I looked at myself and I said, okay, what was my definition of popularity? People screaming my name in the streets. People saying, hey, Stephen A, blah, 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 blah. Well, guess <laughs> what? That can't necessarily be monetized. What's your ratings? What kind of revenue do you bring into the company or to a particular show? Ad sales, things of that nature, Q scores, all of these other things that we're supposed to pay attention to that validate our value to the people who actually make these decisions so they could use that data to basically decipher what you're worth and what you're not. I paid no attention to any of that stuff. And so my mother would say to me, once I ultimately confessed to her that that was the case, she said, well, if you don't know your value, who are you to tell them what your value is? And I had no answer, I had no answer. And so when I looked at it from that perspective, I said, I put them in a position of strength because I'm relying on my emotional feelings to somewhat try and dictate what they should do when it's their job not to make emotional decisions. They're supposed to use other means to decipher and determine your value. And when the, the moment I realized that, it was an epiphany that was a career altering because Chris, from that day forward, I detached emotions from business. And I was able to look at something and say, okay, we're supposed to be in the money-making business. We're supposed to be in the ratings and revenue business. Here's what I bring to the table. And I've been fixated on making sure I understood, at least to some degree, what my value was from that day. And the day that happened, I depersonalized everything. It made me a better professional and it made me a better man and a better adult. And that is why I'm here. I'm where I am today. We're in the same business, same employer, but I, I see our roles as fundamentally different. I mean, your job as I see it, maybe you disagree. If so, straighten me out. But to, to deliver your insight, your opinions, it's about you and your vibe and directing and dominating debates. I document events. I, you, I did a show where opinions mattered and you were expected to throw your two cents in on game day. But as, right. you, as you call a game, it's about others. It's about documenting what's going on. You certainly put your spin on it. Does the idea of doing that bore you it, it, because it doesn't let you be you and, and express your it, thoughts? It doesn't bore me. It's just that for me, the Chris Fowlers of the world are in rarefied air. You're able to document, and, and, and I mean this complimentary, but it, it's for you and it's for people in your position. You've earned the right to be where you are. And so as a result, there's a comfort that comes along with it. You go to a negotiating table, you are Chris Fowler, and this is what you've done. And you've done it on an exceptional level to a point where you're not devalued by the company that you work for or the companies that are in pursuit of your services. Most folks that have the role of documenting and chronicling what's transpiring, to some degree, they're devalued because not enough attention is paid from a monetary standpoint to what they can bring to the table. Whereas when you're giving your opinions, in my case, I did that on a newspaper level. I did chronicle, I did document. I was a beat writer for many years and stuff like that. That never leaves me. I don't think it's one or the other with what I do. I think at the end of the day, my opinion, my perspective is expected 
but also the responsibility that I have to pay attention to what's being documented and chronicled. So I can give a reference point as to why my perspective is what it is. People who just go out there and want to run their mouth, have no sources, have no context, have no, just have no foundation for which they, from which they gathered the information, but they just want to give opinions. No, that you got some people who are doing that, but they're not very successful at this. The people who are successful at this are people for the most part that have been journalists, that had a responsibility at one time or another to chronicle and, and document things and, and, and document events and what have you. And it's never left them. They hold on to it. So what they do is they take what Chris Fowler and others do, the Kirk Herbstreit of the world and others, and they say, okay, based on what they're saying and what I'm seeing and what my sources might tell me and what information I may have gathered, this is what I deduce, as opposed to just being irresponsible and just spewing out something just because you want to. Every dude in the street thinks they can be you and they don't have the insight. They don't have the background. They don't have the thoughtfulness. They, they don't even have a platform except one that they create, but they all think that they can be a pundit and they have no idea what goes right. into it. And as I've always appreciated that you bring many different perspectives to it and a lot of accumulated wisdom, the risk taking, yeah. man, it, it actually goes back as I understand it, even before you were getting paid to be a print journalist, because at Winston-Salem state where you played hoops, for, for Clarence Big House Gaines, you mentioned him. He's a, he's a Hall of Famer. He won more than 800 games. He was a part of Winston-Salem for almost a half century. And, and you, before you busted your kneecap, were on that team. And you wrote an article <laughs> advising him to retire. Now, you've yes. got to be the only active college athlete to ever go write an article telling a legendary coach he's playing for to retire. You understand that? Yeah. It's a, it's a club of one, probably, that's done that and gotten away <laughs> with it. <laughs> right. Well, listen um, – I loved, you know, I didn't have the greatest relationship with my father and Clarence Big House Gaines was like a father to me. And I knew that he was having health issues. And one time we were on the sidelines and he had a patch over his eye and he was very shaky. And I got very worried about him and my teammates got very worried about him. So I was writing for the school newspaper and he and I talked all the time. And while we were talking, I said to him, this is what I noticed. What you going to do about it? And in his acerbic, you know, truculent kind of way, he was like, mind your damn business, you know. And, you know, I said to him, you, you need to take care of this. And basketball can't be the priority when your health is an issue, man. You might need to walk away from this. And he said, hey, F you, man. You know what I'm saying? I'm not doing anything like that. And I said, well, if you don't do it, I'm going to write about it. Since you're so proud and you want everybody that you don't you want to give a damn, you don't want to give a damn, you want to just shove it aside. I'm gonna write about it. And he said, go ahead. And so I did it. And when I did it, uh, you had a bunch of people that obviously had a real big problem with me, including the chancellor of the university who wanted me thrown off campus from what I was told. And Coach Gaines himself intervened and said, leave him alone. Mm. He wants to be a journalist. He told me exactly what he was doing. He told me why beforehand. And I gave him the okay to go ahead and do it. Leave him alone. And that's what happened. A lot of people didn't know that Coach Gaines had given me the okay. They had no idea, but that's what happened. Yeah, he was a giant man in a lot of ways. I, of course, knew him covering college basketball, but I find that, I find that story fascinating. And, and it has a good ending. He did retire a couple of years after that. But, but uh, that's, uh, that's ballsy. 
And, and it was, it was, it was, I guess you, you were throwing a lifeline by him. You go to Philly, you're, you're writing, as you said, a beat report and a columnist, very, very tough sports town. The readers are tough. Uh, it's just a, it's the deep end of the pool. You had a setback though, right? You were, you were a columnist outspoken. You got political. And then they said, uh, uh-uh, get back in your lane. We're going to make you a kind of a, a, a beat reporter, not a columnist. Right. So you had to, you had to take that and then rebuild it. No, what happened was, is that I had gotten quite frankly with ESPN too. And I was doing my radio show in New York. Prior to that, I had an agreement with Philadelphia. Just show back up once or twice a week or so, write a column, and other than that, we're good. And so what happened is, is that once I was doing that in New York, a new regime came into the Philadelphia Inquirer. And obviously, that wasn't an agreement that they co-signed. So they were trying to get me to essentially um, give up my post. And I was like, no, without a severance package. And it was, and 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 this is one individual I never forget about. I can't talk about him from a legal perspective, but he looked me in my face and he said, "You've made enough money." And when he said that to me, um, listen, I'm like, because you know, I'm a black man and I'm a proud black man, and I don't think that everything is racist, and I don't think everything is racism, and there's plenty of black people that I know that are wrong, and there's plenty of white folks that I know that have been right. But in this case, he was wrong and he had nothing to do with the agreement that was signed. And so when he said that to me, basically that you've made enough money, he wasn't talking about the Philadelphia Choir. He was talking about the money that I was making at ESPN, which is none of his business. And so for me, I was like, you done started something. I'm not backing up. I'm not going anywhere. So they tried all of those tactics. Ultimately, it went to arbitration and I won the arbitration case. And I was returned to my stature as a columnist before I, dep- I ultimately left the Philadelphia Inquirer to come back to ESPN. Little did he know the man who should remain nameless about <laughs> money and you. <laughs> hey, people act like what you do is taking a risk when you criticize people that you know. I find it tricky to be friends with college football coaches or even tennis players or coaches because you can be friendly ish, but it was hard for me, right. not because I would be reluctant to criticize them, but they wouldn't like it and they would be right. caught off guard and surprised you sure. that you would come at them and happen many times. Mm-hmm. I mean, you, you thread a line cause you're both a pundit, the, the, the most accomplished pundit, but also an insider. And it's mm-hmm. hard because insiders typically, you know, Schefter, Woj guys are brilliant at that, but they're right. not giving opinions. Correct. They're just working sources. You do both ends of it. It's, it's, does it feel like a tightrope sometimes? Oh, it's definitely a tightrope, um, especially now, but I don't have to do what Adam Schefter and Adrian Wojnarowski, my esteemed colleagues, do. That's, that's what they do every day. I don't have to do that anymore. I just choose to be an insider. because you've got so access connected. to information. you got access to information yeah, exactly. because you're breaking bread with these figures. And then totally. if, 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 if it's the thing to be said, you got to say, that's right. about them. And they know that. And so for me, I just have a cardinal rule that I live by, Chris. Your personal life is your business. Stay out of the police blotters. And I got nothing to say. It's your personal life. It's your story to tell. Unless you let it get, unless something happens that you're in the police blotters. And that's public information. And that changes everything. But what you do on the court of field of play, that's my domain. And what I mean by that is that that's what you're putting out on display for the public to decipher and evaluate, that would happen to be me. And so if you go out on the court and you play like garbage, I'm gonna say you play like garbage. 
But you, you have stepped great. out and said, hey, James Harden, you played like garbage against the Brooklyn Nets and you were out at a club. You're, you're not afraid to sort of be the no. wiser uncle to say, hey, right. check yourself. You've, you've done not it in the all. past. You know, you, recreational marijuana use is rampant right. in pro sports. You've taken a strong right. stance against that. Yeah, absolutely. And, re- and understand something. I often use this phrase. We don't have we don't have Thanksgiving dinner together. We don't exchange Christmas gifts. I mean, the fact of the matter is, is that I have a job to do and I'm going to do it. I'm not trying to screw you over. I'm not trying to bury you. I'm not trying to do anything, but I'm chronicling what's transpiring and I'm disseminating that message to the masses. And I have an obligation to do that. Now, we can be friendly with one another so long as you understand that. If you don't understand that, then we don't have to be friendly at all. We certainly don't have to be enemies, but I'm going to do my job. That is my job. And you know that coming, I mean, from day one, the first minute, we make sure we understand. I make sure folks understand this is what my job is and this is exactly what I am going to do. And if you don't like it, you better get over it because, as you can see, there's a whole bunch of pundits out there who have a responsibility to do that job. Some of them might do it better than me. Most don't. When people heard you're going to be on, it's, oh, I love Stephen A. He's crazy or he's crazy. I can't listen to him. I mean, you're going to be polarizing. The people who have done what you do at a Hall of Fame level, by definition, are somewhat polarizing. One mm-hmm. poll is smaller than the other, you hope. But the sure. crazy part, you're a very thoughtful person. You don't, you don't shoot and then aim later. Right. How, do you, how do you react when, when you get that, that crazy, loud, bombastic? I, 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 I totally understand where they're coming from because it's a debate. It's bam, bam, bam. It's <laughs> friction all day long, right? And so you're going at it. So they're paying attention to my delivery and presentation. But they need to pay more attention to my content because in the midst of all of that bantering and, and, and you know, just that abrasive back and forth at times, like you said, I am thoughtful and I I do know what I want to say for the most part. I'm not perfect, but I do know what I want to say and I am trying to be responsible. And so they're paying attention to my presentation. And sometimes that hurts me because my presentation usurps my content. Mm -hmm. And I recognize that. But I also get scared because if I came on the air like this, Chris, every morning at 10 o'clock, hey, welcome to First Take. How y'all doing? (laughs) Uh, You know, here's how I feel. And that's not how. You generate ratings. That's not how you generate interest in the product that you're asking people to take time out of their schedule to watch. You need to be as passionate and enthusiastic as 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 anybody if you want people to watch you. If Chris Fowler is calling uh, 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 Alabama and and LSU or something, you're not sitting up there mumbling. You're not you're not you're, you're not talking like you're talking to the white. We've had in the a few house. bad games, but I get I get your point. You're expected to bring the energy that matches the occasion. You're projecting. You're yeah. projecting. And that's what I'm talking about. That's what I bring to the table a lot of times. So I understand why people think I'm crazy because they're focused on that. But I'm but not so there's crazy. A, you're a, I don't use this word lightly, man. You you are a genius communicator in that you can start out at a one and you're almost more riveting when you're quiet. And then you bring it up. I, I saw today a conversation about Frank Vogel and the Lakers. And then you bring it up. Then you're, you're at a six. Then you're at an eight. Then you're at a nine. And, it, and yeah. you're rolling. And it's riveting, too. Then you bring it back down quiet. So the sermon matters, but the way it's delivered. You know that. Anybody's been to church. Well, it's the way it's delivered is equally important sometimes. I got to tell you, man, it changed. That was one of the things that I learned when I lost my job in 2009. 
because as I went back and I watched myself, it was screaming A, screaming A, screaming A. And I got to confess, it was the one time in my life I got tired because I thought I had to be on 100 all the time. And then I started looking at myself and I said, wait a minute. I'm just as effective when I lower my voice after I raise it. I'm just as effective when I'm quiet and I'm making my facial expressions where the audience knows I'm talking to them without saying a word. And so I learned ultimately to bring all of those things together to basically fit my personality, my persona. I think about how I'm talking, you know, I talk to my mother one way, God rest her soul. I talk to my father another way. I talk to my four older sisters, but none of them exactly the same. I talk to my older sister, Linda, differently in a way than I talk to my younger sister, Carmen, who's four years older than me. And then I'm Uncle Steve over here with 15 nieces and nephews. And so all of a sudden I'm talking to them in a totally different way than I talk to my sisters. Are you seeing all these people as you're doing your show? Are you you imagining all these faces? Yeah. And so it's like, you know, you're doing all of this, right? And and, and you just, and you just say, wait a minute, that's what I do in life. Why would I not bring that to the tune? I'm not speaking at a high volume. Certainly when I'm talking to my mother, it was yes, man. Yeah, ma, but ma, oh, I'm whining, but ma, no, that, you know, and then my father, he and I are usually, we were usually arguing sports. So I'm debating him. Whereas with my sisters, they were my big sisters. So they'd slap me upside my head if I talked to them in a certain way. But my nieces and nephews couldn't because I was Uncle Steve. So all of these different things, I just learned to bring to the table and said, no, I'm not a one trick pony. I got a multitude of dimensions to my presentation and my delivery bring it all to television. Let them see who you truly, truly are. And that's what I do. Yeah. People tend to think that those who are animated are not authentic. I, you, you bring a great deal of authenticity or nobody would, uh, would, uh, jump on the bandwagon as they have for, for this many years. You, you've obviously talked a few times about your family. I want to ask about growing up the youngest of six with four older sisters. I didn't have, you didn't have one older sister. I wish I had one. You had five, four. I don't know, but one would have been lovely. Will yeah. Anderson is one of the faces of the sport at Alabama. He's going to be um, one of the top players. Should have been a Heisman finalist this past year. I've talked to him about being raised by four older sisters and how that shaped him, gave him perspective, a softness in a way you don't usually hear a football player talk about it. How, how did it shape you, Stephen A., to grow up the, with four older sisters and a, and a strong mom? Well, you appreciate the brilliance, the courage, of women, Uh, you recognize that no matter how difficult you think you may have it, they have it difficult too. And somehow, some way, they persevere and they keep on pushing forward. And particularly when you're a man, black, white, Hispanic, doesn't matter. We all got a little macho-ness in us where we, we, you know, it's our way. We, we, we could handle it. We could do this. We could do that. And then when those times come and we want to give up, in most cases, you might defer to another guy. In my case, I, without hesitation, deferred to women because the women in my life were extremely strong. No matter what obstacles came in their way, we have to adapt and we have to overcome so I'll tell you a little story. Mark Shapiro, the former boss, our former boss at ESPN, 
gives me the show, quite frankly, on ESPN2 in 2005. He wants me to do it. I'm petrified. I'm scared. To, I'm scared to death. I'm like, I ain't never hosted a television show before. What are you talking about? I mean, I can sit up there and give my opinion about something. I cover, I cover basketball. I cover football. I can do that. But I, I, I can't host. I don't know how to read a prompter. I don't know how to do this. I'm no Stuart Scott. I'm no John Saunders. I'm no Chris Berman. And he's, I don't dare Patrick. I don't know this stuff. This is crazy. I can't do this. And my sister Linda was like, oh, so we are punk now. That's what we are. We, we, we're, we're a punk. That's what we are. I mean, that's what we do. We scared. We scared of a challenge. What the hell is this? And literally ripped into me. She, she called me names that I won't even repeat on this podcast. I mean, she was like, what the hell? I, this is not my brother. I don't know. You scared? What, what, you, you embrace this. You take this challenge. This is your opportunity to show what you're made of. What the hell are you doing? And then she reminded me of what my late brother had said to me, because he died in a car accident in 1992, in October of 1992. That August of 1992, two months before he passed away, while I had just graduated from Winston-Salem and was coming into the journalism business, my brother looked me in my face and said, you're going to be a star on ESPN one day. You watch. You're going to do this. You're going to be recognized one of the best who ever did it. The next Howard Cosell, stuff like that. He was saying this stuff. I obviously shared that with my family. And my sister at that time reminded me of what he said. And she said he's rolling over in his grave right now because his little brother's an effing punk. And I called Mark Shapiro five minutes later. I said, I accept. Because she had challenged me like, you don't run. You embrace challenges. You don't run from them. And I called them and I said, make the numbers right. And I accept I'll do the show. But it was feeding off of that conversation with my sister, Linda. That's powerful. Linda could be a great life coach, but yeah. it's more powerful when it's blood. That, that's, that's a great story, yeah. Stephen. I, you know, I lost my mom. Um, it was very painful to watch her fade away. It was Alzheimer's. You become... Yeah. Uh, an echo of yourself. You're, you're a shell of yourself. Um, we never had that conversation that apparently you, you've talked about having with your mom where she could say, listen, I've taught you a lot. Here's what I hope you've learned when you've listened to me. Here's how I hope you use it. Yeah. So you lose her. It's tough. It's devastating. The finality is always yeah. destroys your heart. But you had that. How often have you used that? Every day. Um, as you said, you lost your mother. God bless her. My condolences to you and your family. Um, but you know what I'm about to say. It never leaves you. You carry her with you wherever you go. She's there with you in spirit. You can recall times. It could be you sitting down having lunch or dinner. You just lounging around the house. Her getting on you, getting on you, getting on you about something. It could be anything. Every single day, something pops in my head about what my mother would say, what my mother would do, whether she chastised me, celebrate me, hug me, whatever, something everywhere that I go and no matter what I'm doing. And it grounds me what, what it took me about two or three years 
to get over was the fact that it depressed me because no matter what I recalled or remembered, it would always come back to, she's not here anymore. And one of the things that I've said to a couple of people is that I'm, I'm not married, I'm single. Um, when you're single, you never think about this, but the person who loves you most and loves you unconditionally, the woman who loves you most and unconditionally is usually your mom. If you've gotten married before your mother passes away, there's obviously somebody to some degree she's passed that mantle to, to love you forever, to be there for you, et cetera, et cetera. But when you're single, that didn't happen. And so when she's gone, one of the first thoughts that enter your mind is, the person who loved me most and unconditionally is no longer here. And you feel very lost and very, very alone. And it's hard to overcome. And the only reason why to some degree I've been able to overcome it is because many people, believe it or not, have reached out to me who've lost their mom and they've been devastated and they come up to me and I'd always tell them what my mother had said to me in the weeks before she passed. She said, why are you so sad? I appreciate the fact that you're sad enough to miss me and I love you for it, but this is the way it's supposed to be because would you rather it be the other way? If you loved me, you wouldn't, because then that means I'd be burying you. And that's not the way this is supposed to go. And so I've always told men specifically who lost their mother that story when they come up to me and they ask me about it, just to let them know as much as painful as it is that she's gone, she wanted it that way. She would not have wanted to, you to go before her. Remember that and hold on to that. And that's what I try to do just to tell folks that. Yeah, that's beautiful. I, I think many would say the lessons don't stop even from the next world, yeah. right? They continue. Yeah. I talked about risk-taking. People are familiar with the risks you take on ESPN. I'm a big General Hospital viewer. My wife, Jennifer, who co-produced this podcast, is a right. long, long time rabid General Hospital right. viewer. I, right. She probably wouldn't like the term rabid, but you get it. So you, you took a professional risk you're, you play Brick, who I, I would say is a, a tough character, a, a fixer, surveillance expert. Surveillance expert for the mob. For Sonny Corinthos, one of the legendary <laughs> figures played by Maurice Bernard. Now, That's that right. is a risk. Now, you know, because you're stepping out there. You're not, you're not playing yourself. You've done that on Blackish and other things. You get those offers to come play yourself. Right. When you're playing a character and you're working with iconic actors, Laura mm -hmm. Wright, Maurice Bernard, mm -hmm. these, these are some of the most legendary figures in the history of soap operas, and you're doing yeah. scenes with them. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's the deep end of the pool, and you go in as a novice. At mm -hmm. what point do you transition from mistake avoidance, not wanting to screw up, to like pursuing excellence? Because you, you got chops. If people listening to this have not seen you act, they need to check that out. I got to tell you, man, I mean, I appreciate you saying that. What I would tell you is that I didn't view it as a risk. Um, because it happened by accident. What happened is, is that I had made a cameo appearance in 2007 for like 10 seconds. And then other than that, it was done. But I've always been a General Hospital fan. I've been watching the soap opera for now. It's about 46 years. I've been watching it since I was eight years old. Because when you came home from school, you weren't all the TVs, the couple of TVs we had in the house. We're both on General Hospital. So if you want to watch TV, you have to watch General Hospital. If not, you had to go do your homework because those are the TVs. That's what my <laughs> sister's watching on TV. 
And so I grew I was watching it from the days of Frank Smith and the mob to the weather machine and the Cassidines and all of this other stuff. It was crazy. And so I came there a few years ago because they saw first take and saw me saying how much of a big general hospital fan I was. And they had me do a scene, the executive producer of the show, Frank Valentini, who's just a wonderful, wonderful guy and a brilliant executive producer. They asked me to come on the show. I did this scene with Maurice Bernard, the star of the show, who plays the role of Sonny Corinthos. And I come on the show and I do a scene with them, with him. And the next thing I know, they just stop taping. And Frank Valentini runs downstairs and comes over to the set. And he says, you were phenomenal. And Maurice Bernard was like, yes, you were. And Frank says, what we want to know is, do you have time to do this? I said, do what? They said, we want to make this character a permanent character for a recurring role in this show. And I said, done. <laughs> I said, please. I said, anytime I got, I said, I got a schedule. I got to honor my obligations to ESPN have to come first. But anytime I could be out here to do this, I will do it. It's not a problem because it's totally fun with me. And so from that point forward, Maurice Bernard has looked at me and he says, I know you don't believe it, but you have it. He said, I've been around for a long time. He said, you have it. Whatever that it is, you've just got it. And he said, I'm telling you, I've been in this business a long time. And a lot of people can't do what you do. They get in front of that camera, those lights, cameras actually come on and they're nervous as hell. And I said, well, don't think I wasn't. I was going to say, come on, you're telling me you just slid in there and this is feeling natural because everybody knows about first take. These days in soap operas, it is first take. You don't get a chance to rehearse. It's not like the old days. you got to nail it. It's a team sport. It's collaborative. You screw up, everybody else is wasting their time. Exactly. That's exactly the part that made me nervous. So my point is, I've never viewed myself as an actor because all I'm trying to do is memorize my lines. That's it. Just so I don't screw it up for everybody else on set. Because if you get it wrong, they have to do it over. People have to stay longer. It inconveniences everybody's life. You have to do your job. But Maurice Bernard deserves all the credit. It's actually two guys. I'm actually blessed and fortunate, Chris. I know the two biggest soap opera stars, arguably, in history. I'm very, very good friends, great friends with Eric Braden, who plays Victor Newman on Young and the Restless. He's a huge First Take fan, and his son Christian is a phenomenal director. He, um, you know, he's done a couple of movies and what have you. And he, you know, he said to his father, "This dude's the best sports analyst in television. You got to meet him." And his father watched him, and his father watched me, and he tweeted me one day, and I and I said, "Who the hell is Eric Braden?" I had no idea. It was Victor Newman for Young and the Restless. I knew it. Was, <laughs> I knew Victor Newman. I just never paid attention to what his real name was. And so we made arrangements to see one another in L.A. We had lunch and we've been inseparable since. Every time I'm in L.A., we always have lunch or dinner. I'm very close to him and he would give me tips. And then when I went on the set with Maurice Bernard, Maurice Bernard would got me. OK, here's what I'm looking for with this scene. Think about this. Think about this. Think about that. And he tell me and just guide me. And the more he guided me, the better I look. So I'm like, it's really them. It's, it's especially Maurice Bernard just teaching me on the spot, on the set, 
this is what I need from this. But if he says you got it, if he's that's high praise, what are you going to do with it? Is there more acting? Oh, I'd love it to be. I mean, I don't pursue it per se, but when people ask me, I definitely will consider it. That's what that's how Blackish came about when I was on Blackish, you know, because I'm friends with Anthony Anderson, but he's not the one who called, Um, you know, Kenya Burris and those guys do a great job. And they asked me to come on the show and I was happy to come on and do a scene with uh, with Anthony Anderson, who I think is, is just a phenomenal actor. Mm-hmm. Um, but the thing that I love about those scenes acting, are very funny. But you were playing yourself, and you you were yes. playing uh, maybe a slightly heightened yeah. version of yourself. Yes. And and, yeah. and you won round one big, and then then you didn't win yeah. the end. <laughs> but but that's but right. You, the little girl got about me. yourself. So <laughs> the daughter got me. But I, I I think what I love about it is that when you're acting, you can play any role that the role dictates, you can play any character that the role dictates for you. And so you can be something else. And the fact that you can be something else is a huge, huge deal. And not only that, it comes in handy because when you're on live television doing first take every day, sometimes you got to put on your acting chop in terms of your mood. and what You might come in a little tired. You might come in a little sluggish. You might come in because, you know, family or friends or somebody annoyed you, but the audience don't want to hear that. The lights are on. It's time. It's showtime. And they want what they want from you. And so knowing that that's what you've got to bring to the scene acting wise, that also helped me doing first take as well. Where do you get the stamina mentally, physically? Do you get, you, the voice is the instrument. You got to take care of the voice because you're using it. You're, you're, you're testing it and challenging it every day. I mean, look, you, you had you woke up. And people don't know this, except maybe a lot of your hardcore um, viewers. But you rang in 2022 in a hospital. You had a, you had a you fully vaccinated, right? But you had a bad bout of COVID, pneumonia in both lungs, as you've described it. Yep. And it was dicey. And you took, yeah, a long, was. you took a long time off. You had to kind of come back and maybe with a different yeah. perspective, rebuild your stamina. Yeah, um, I'm passionate about, I love my job. So that helps. Um, I know how to pace myself to some degree. That helps. But COVID was a different animal. Um, I'm not in the greatest shape in the world, but I ain't in bad shape. Um, I exercise a few days a week. Um, And to be in a situation where I was laboring with my breathing, uh, to have pneumonia in both lungs, to get progressively worse, go through the hallucinations and all of this other stuff, delusions and everything was crazy. Um, But I think the scariest moment was um, New Year's Eve because I had visited the hospital twice, but New Year's Eve, around 1030 that night before the ball dropped, hour and a half before the ball dropped, I was feeling really, really, really bad. And um, the nurse came in there and they looked at my x-rays and stuff like that and took x-rays of my chest and what have you. They did all of that and they turned around and they said, what's your family's number? We need to call them. They said, we're going to try something, but this is pretty bad. And I think what ultimately ended up happening was that several weeks earlier, I had an endoscopy performed because my my throat was a little bit raspy and my stomach was hurting. And they found out that I had an inflamed esophagus and a bacterial infection. So the combination of the two put me in a bad spot. COVID piggybacked off that. And so if you're already having problems with your esophagus and then COVID comes in, it swarms you. And so that's where the ultimately the pneumonia came into play and everything and nothing seemed to be working. And it turned out that they put me on steroids and an antibiotic and took me off the antibiotic that I was on for the endoscopy. 
And that ultimately made me better in a matter of hours and ultimately got me through COVID. But it was a real, real big time scare at that particular moment in time because my doctors, they, they continue to tell me, had I not been vaccinated, I wouldn't be here. They told me I would have been gone. Yeah, holy shit. I mean, that, that's not supposed to happen to a fully vaccinated person this late right. in the COVID game. And you're, they're telling you maybe you better call your family? Yeah. Wow. I mean, they, yeah. they know that you, you had plenty of acquired wisdom and, and resilience, yeah. but you come back after that. I mean, what we do yeah. on one level is pretty silly stuff. We get to, we get to talk about athletes and games and mm-hmm. sports and stuff like that. And people are out mm-hmm. doing real world jobs, including the people that are taking care of you in the hospital. What, what did that do when, I mean, obviously you're fired up to get back on TV, but when you come back and the light goes on and it's first take time, how are you a changed person, Stephen A., from that? The first order work? of business, I thought, I, I was reminded of the inherent responsibility that I have. Of course, I was appreciative of my family and my loved ones. So there was an elevated level of appreciation that went on from there. But then to go back on the air after a month off with so many people looking for me, wondering what was going on, where am I? Colleagues all over the place, friends, everybody, because they never seen me take off that amount of time in my career. I took off more between mid-December and uh, mid-January, sick-wise, for sick days, more than I've taken off in my entire 28-year career combined. I mean, I used like 36 days for crying out loud. I was really bad. And so to come back and to see just the world in flux as it be as it pertained to COVID, I felt an inherent responsibility just to let everybody know what happened to me. Make your own decisions. You got your own doctors, your medical experts. You know what your health situation is. I'm not going to get into all of you should be vaccinated or whatever, even though I think you should. That's your business. But I, I was basically, I basically felt an obligation to bring it to perspective. This virus is real. COVID-19 is real. And when you're walking around without a mask, when you're walking around being completely oblivious or disinterested or apathetic towards how the next person could be harmed, that's where it's un-American. That's where we're not our best selves. You know, and I wanted to send that message because my sister, smokes every day. I hate it. She's a smoker. She got COVID from me and she was fine in three days. I don't smoke. I'm a casual drinker. I exercise all the time and I almost died. And so for me, it was like, it can happen to anybody and you don't know why. So let's be considerate enough to think about our fellow woman and man at least to the point where we're not jeopardizing somebody else. And that was a message that I felt obligated to come back and bring because they say I'm the face of ESPN. It is the worldwide leader. We have tremendous reach. And with that position comes responsibility. And to me, that needed to take precedent over anything else. And that's why I came back the way that I came back. My first focus was to deliver that message and to let everybody know, yeah, I recovered, but I went through hell in order to get here. Let's think about that for a second. And that's what I tried to do. Yeah, yet another way that you powerfully use the platform. Well said. Well, I, I'm, your viewers are glad that you're back ready to work because you need to roar 
uh, at, with full energy with, with, when Chris Mad Dog Russo comes on every Wednesday to first take us to become, <laughs> become appointment yeah. TV. Not that the show isn't every day, but when, when he comes in and tries to match your energy, <laughs> tries to yeah. match you, that, that is, I've known him forever. I mean, that is, that is, uh, does that feel like, hey, these are the minutes of the week when I really got to put the gloves on and go at it? Or is it just, well, uh, I, 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 you know, for me personally, um, yeah from the standpoint that he is Mad Dog Russo. The man doesn't have his own show. He's got his own channel. You know, I mean, he's got, he's got, he's got damn near a cult following for crying out loud. We get all of that. But, you know, I'm old school in the sense, you know, one of the greatest compliments I ever received when I first came back to ESPN in 2011. Everybody was shaking my hand. Good to see you, blah, 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 blah. And then Boomer, Chris Berman shook my hand and he said, welcome home. You never should have left. And that meant the world to me coming from somebody like him. And I bring all of that up to say, you know, I might be younger than some folks, same age as some folks or whatever, but I'm old school at heart. I know who paved the way for me. You know, I remember all of y'all. I remember, listen, I remember Howard Cosell back in the day. I remember Jimmy the Greek. I remember Irv Cross, Brent Musburger on the new side, Ted Koppel, you know, Peter Jennings, you know, Dan Rather, Tom Brokaw. I remember, you know, the John Saunders of the world, the Dan Patrick, the Keith Obermans of the world, the Rich Eisens of the world. You know, you and Kirk Herbst, you've been doing a great job all these years, Lee Corso. You know, all of these guys, Rich Eisen, listen, what what ESPN is, what this industry is, is because of the people who preceded me. And so when everybody comes along now and it's about the younger generation and it's about the younger demographic, I get that. That's the audience. But I refuse to allow anybody to ever think that I am somebody that in catering to that younger audience is going to forget the people that put me in a position to cater to them. So I feel an inherent responsibility as somebody who's seen as having some kind of gravitational pull with that younger audience to sort of pull that audience over to me in a way that reminds them of the people who preceded me. That's a big, big deal to me. Don't forget the people who paved the way. Know some semblance of your history. And that's what I try to do. And, and, and when I look at Mad Dog Russo, he was doing it in the 80s. Yep. He and Mike Francesa, Mike and the Mad Dog, started sports talk radio. And I'm like, wait a minute. I'm not forgetting that. I want the world to know who he is. I want them to see what he brings to the table. I want them to know and understand his value. And I love the fact that he looks differently than I do and thinks differently than I do and come from a different cultural background than I do. Because I want the audience to know I'm not here just to tell you how I feel. I want you to have it all and then make your decision based on how we debate one another. I think that's the fair and right thing to do. And I'm very, very big on that. Yeah, we grew up watching and admiring a lot of the same icons. Beginning, you mentioned Cosell, Jim McKay, many others. It's, it's really thrilling when you actually get to bridge and work with some of those people later in their careers, early in your careers. That, that's been a thrill for me. I'll leave you with this question because we've talked about challenges and risks I think improvement and growth are not just expected. They're essential to us. So what's, what's when you look forward and knowing that in this business, sometimes it doesn't end well, even for the legends. It's, I don't know what it is. It, sometimes it doesn't end well. What's, what's next for you? What are the areas where you say, I, I can continue to grow and improve and do something better or do something different? Well, 
I don't rule out the possibility that this next, this last contract and I've got over three years remaining on it could be my last on first take. Um, that remains to be seen. I thoroughly enjoy doing it, but I'm anxious to do other things. I started my own production company, Mr. SAS Productions. I want to show my producing chops to produce content, sitcom scripted and unscripted, docu-series, uh, drama series, those kind of things, even film eventually. Um, I want to start my own podcast company. I have an aspiration to do that. Um, I'm still going to, I'm going to, I'm going to elevate my acting chops to some degree. I'm going to do more of that. Um, definitely. So, um, and my ultimate aspiration as well on camera is to do late night television. When I think about Stephen Gobert, I think about Jimmy Fallon. I think about the great Jimmy Kimmel. Um, I come back to the days of, uh, you know, Johnny Carson, David Letterman, Jay Leno, Arsenio Hall. Um, I, I, I saw all of this stuff and, you know, they basically celebrate the great, great things that people are doing. I've been debating and been being combative for years, but I want to step back and have a good time and show that I know how to have a good time and I can help others shine as well and celebrate the great things that they do. So, you know, again, to answer that question, being a producer with my production company behind the scenes, doing late night television in front of the camera. Those are my primary two obligations and how soon that will happen remains to be seen, but I would prefer much sooner than later. Well, I can't wait to see all the things that unfold next. Look forward to reading the memoir you mentioned uh, in about a year's time. Stephen A. Smith, you always bring it, man. And thank you for bringing it here. I'm grateful for <laughs> you and uh, continued success. I appreciate you, Chris, man. Thanks for all the great work that you do. Honored and proud to call you a colleague, my man. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate Stephen A.'s time in a very busy schedule and for saying yes immediately to this request. I really enjoyed getting to know him a little bit. I hope you enjoyed seeing different sides to the man, things that contribute to making him the great broadcaster that he is. As always, grateful to my co-executive producer on the podcast, Jennifer Dempster, and to Jason Weichel for his editing skills. Please subscribe to the podcast, review it, leave feedback on my Instagram at Chris Fowler or at chrisfowler.com. I'll talk to you soon.